Let's go ahead and get started in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day you've granted to us to be here. Open our hearts, minds, and give us understanding and insight into this most difficult topic. And I pray, Father, that when our reason ends, we are, our faith would begin and we would just take your word for it. Even though we will not fully understand you, we can understand what you have told us. And I pray that that would be good enough for us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, last week we started talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, which is probably one of the toughest doctrines when it comes to God to understand. And uh, we made the comment that every single cult out there fouls this one up. So if you're trying to figure out if some new, um, some new cult or some new teaching or some new religious movement out there is of God or not, usually you can go and try and figure out what the Trinity is. Yeah. It's the same as last week. Um, yeah, I think we got one left up here. Yeah, church and its It's it's the same as last week. Um, I think that's the last one there. Um, but every cult out there will file this one up. The only cult that really doesn't file this up is Catholicism. All right, Catholicism does have the Trinity right, but they got the person and work of Christ wrong. All right, but. Um, all the cults mess this up. And, and the problem is, whenever we take our human intellect and we try to figure out, okay, how can Jesus be God, and yet there's one God, and yet the Father is God, but then there's the Holy Spirit, and we start going around in circles, we're going to wind up in trouble. And what we need to do is go back and understand that there's a mystery about God that we will not comprehend, and we need to take God for what he says. When it comes to the Trinity, the critical component to understand is that you cannot deny the deity of Christ and get to heaven, period. If you deny that Jesus is God, there is no hope for you. The Bible says that it's very clear. Jesus said in John 8, if you do not believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. And where I'm going, you can't come. All right? If you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, come in the flesh, John 4, 1 John 4, you will not, you will not be saved. You cannot get to heaven. You cannot deny that. You may not understand that. In fact, in the doctrine of Christ, we're going to spend two or three weeks talking about the deity and humanity of Christ. So we're going to really explore this in greater detail. But you cannot walk away from Christ and say he's not fully 100% deity, God in the flesh, and be a Christian. You can't do it. All right? So that's very important. So when we looked at the Orthodox definition, we need to understand that this is not the church defining the doctrine. This is very important. What you see on the History Channel and you see on the Discovery Channel is these, you know, sort of religious expert mucky-mucks get up there and say, well, you know, the, the, the early church really didn't believe in the Trinity. That's something that the church invented in later centuries. They created this doctrine. And they do that with a lot of the doctrines that we hold. Well, the church created these. Um, one of the big ones when we're talking about the deity of Christ, they say, well, the early church, they never saw Jesus as God. They just saw him as a great teacher. And it wasn't until Nicaea that they finally got around to defining the fact that he is God and claiming that as, a, as a, an essential doctrinal point. That is a bunch of baloney. All right. That's garbage. All right. What the church did do is they define what does it mean when we say Jesus is God? What does it mean? How do we understand that? How, how, do we, how do we define that in a way that we can comprehend? It's not they didn't believe it. They just needed to define it. You know, when Jesus was here, it's easy for the disciples to say, well, you're God. You're, 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 you're the Messiah. You're, you're the God. Okay, what do you mean by that? And then they have to start thinking, well, what do I mean by that when I say he is deity? What do I mean by that? 
when he is God and yet there's one God. How do I define that? And that's what's happening. It's not that we're creating doctrine, it's that we're trying to understand the doctrine that the church already believes and put that in a format that the common person could understand and, and go with. And a lot of times this is done in creeds. You know, back in the early centuries, most people didn't read. You know, the, the average person didn't read at all. And uh, for them to understand things, they would learn it by rote memory. That's where the creeds come from. People would learn by rote memory. And so the church is trying to define these. And also, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity and a lot of other doctrines, a lot of the definition was done in reaction to some heresy. You know, somebody would come along and say, well, Jesus is a created being. And then the church would have to wrestle, well, now, wait a minute, what does it mean in First John, you know, John 1? What does it mean in this passage, in that other passage? And they would respond, in, in, um, respond to these heresies by clarifying. And that's the idea. It's clarifying what the doctrine is, not defining it, clarifying it. Um, for example, right here I use this example of Arianism. We're going to talk about that in detail in the Christology class coming up. But uh, this guy taught that Jesus was created being. He's the modern, the modern day version of this is Jehovah Witnesses. All right, to believe that. Um, they come to your door and say, Jesus is not God. Um, we talked about Tertullian. This is a little bit of review. We're talking about Tertullian being the first one. Tertullian was a guy that lived around the second century A.D. And he was the first one that really uses this term um, Trinity when he was talking about his apologetic against Sabellianism. Here's, here's a question. What, remember last week we talked about Sabellianism? Anybody remember that? No. Modalistic monarchianism, right? Which means what? Modalism. Think of modalism. What does it mean? Everybody has a mode. Yeah, so in the Old Testament, God is seen as the Father. In the New Testament, he's seen as the Son. In the church, he's seen as the Holy Spirit. It's not three individual personalities. Rather, it's the same God that just appears in a different way, much as a man would appear as a boy, as a young man, as a father, as a grandfather. Same person, just a different view of that person. That's modalistic monarchianism or sabellianism. And Tertullian wrote an apologetic against this. And he uses this term, trinity. Unity and trinity. Three in one. Origin of Alexandria is another early church father. And he's the first one to use this term. This is an important term, hypostasis. We're going to talk about in Christology, this is a, a theological term, the hypostatic union. And what we mean by that is what does it mean when we say Jesus is fully God and fully man? He is 100% God, yet he is 100% man. Does that make him 200% uh, of something? Um, does that erase his humanity? Is he so much God that he's not human? Or is he so much human that he's not God? And we're going to talk about that in detail, so don't worry about it. It's just a term that, that we'll explore then. But the hypostasis substance, what, the, what they're trying to say is that God exists one mode in three substances, but these substances are equal. And, and really what you're doing, what they're trying to do is grasp at words to try and describe something that's very difficult to understand. Um, unfortunately, though, he went on a little too far. And he taught some form of subordinationism. Now, this is another word we talked about last week. And what that means, and, and by the way, these will crop up in your 
discussions with people and when they would talk about this. Was Jesus Christ eternally subordinate to the Father? That's the question. Was he eternally subordinate to the Father? In other words, although you have a trinity, although all three are co-equal, co-eternal, co-guide, is, it, is there a sense in which one is always, or has always been over the other two? That's called subordinationism. And the Bible teaches, no, it's not. Now, it, it is true when we talk about redemption, right? Jesus Christ voluntarily, in fact, he says, he says in himself in John 6, I came to do the will of my Father. That does not mean that Christ was eternally subordinate to the Father. Rather, it means that for the purposes of the drama of redemption, Christ subordinated his will to the will of the Father. He gladly did what the Father sent him to do. The same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no less God than God the Father, but the Holy Spirit in the drama of redemption submitted himself, submitted his will to that of the Son and of the Father in the effecting of our salvation. He is the agent of regeneration, and we'll talk about that later. But subordinationism is not good. It's a bad thing. Jesus Christ was not eternally subordinate to the Father. Right. But I also wanted to say that, um, and I just want to run this slide since I had the first two Sundays, whether you talked about this or not, with regard to the Trinity, the way I teach it is that uh, I compare it to H2O. H2O is H2O mm -hmm. is H2O, mm -hmm. but it comes in the form of water and of ice and of steam. Yeah. So it, it, it's the same thing with three different uh, uh, aspects. And, and the, the same kind of imagery is often used to talk about the Trinity. The thing we have to also put in there is that those are three separate personalities. It's not the same personality that we see three different ways. Three distinct personalities. And in fact, last week we talked about um, patripassionism, the fact that if you, that, that some think that the Father died on the cross. If you got one God, right? God is one. And God died on the cross. The Father had to die on the cross. I, I, right. God did die on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was the personality that died on the cross. Not the Father and not the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we need to be careful. And again, when we're, this is a tough thing to define and talk about. And that's why all the cults get totally tangled up in this. You know, I had a Jehovah Witness come to my door. He said, if I can't understand the Trinity, it can't be true. And I said, wow, you're a pretty smart person. You know, you don't, you know, so that means if you don't understand gravity, it's false. You can jump off a building, it ain't going to hurt you. You know, that's silly. That's nonsense. All right. I don't need, you don't need to go down that path. I saw. Is, is it one of those things that we have to just kind of accept or is there a way to explain what I'm going for? It? Yeah. Yes. God on the cross. Yeah. You got to go with it there. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to weasel out on this thing because when it comes to this stuff, you just your brain doesn't think like this. You can't reason like this. So you have to go with what the scripture says. The personality 
that died on the cross, the hypostases, if you want to think about it, that died on the cross, that was the Son. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. The Father turned his back on his Son on the cross. All right? The Father did not die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. He is the one that is our Redeemer. Yes? Yes. Now we have in the Bible, saying by the Jesus, that we talk to read the Bible, they're going to have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. Got that. Now, we go to tell somebody that it was actually God Himself who died on the cross, but as you clearly stated, His personality is mm-hmm. Christ. Now, I'm going to clarify the person that it was God that died. You're not going to be able to sort it out for them. If you can't sort it out, you're not going to sort it out for a pagan. Like how, when I reference is how would we guide them to how to sort it out? I mean, I understand the fact that yeah. they don't get it, but the, the, the only thing you can do is take them to the scripture. That's all you can do. When when Jesus Christ came into the world, what did it say? His name would call, be called Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, you got to go with that. All right. Um, I don't understand fully how the Trinity works. And that's one of those faith things. All right. Yes. In the beginning, God, Elohim, plural, created. All right. And, and, and again, you, you, we're not going to sort this out. And and I don't. We, we we can't. We can't explain it to the pagan. Well, he you said that he would send his Messiah, yeah. the one that was anointed mm-hmm. apart from God, and Jesus said he was the Messiah. And here's, here's the wonderful thing. This, this is why, you know, quite honestly, I believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God and salvation. If that person is elect, this isn't going to matter to them. They're not going to have to figure it out, because God will grant them the faith to believe. You don't have to explain. You don't say, well, if I could have just explained the Trinity better, that person would have been a Christian. No. You don't have to go down that guilt trip. All right? There, and you didn't, none of us here, how many of us understood the Trinity when we became Christians? Anybody understand the Trinity? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't understand it. I still don't. But God saved me anyways. Yeah. He was praying to the Father, which is himself, and don't try to figure it out. He's praying to the Father. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think the New Testament pattern is we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Okay. But it's not wrong to address Christ in our prayers. Right? It's not wrong to thank him for dying for me on the cross. Or a communion where I thank Christ for taking my place on the cross. That's not wrong. Now, I think that the pattern in the New Testament is that we are to pray to the Father. Yeah. In the name of Christ. But it's not wrong to address, you know, the other members of the Trinity in our prayers, I don't think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So we use 
And they're all in unity and they all communicate to one another. So you're not going to say something to the Father that the Son forgot about. You know. Um, but I think the New Testament, Christ says, pray to the Father. Alright? In my name. Okay? And I think that's the best thing to do. But it's not wrong to thank Christ. Now, I think it'd be wrong to, you know, I don't think it'd be, I have to think about this a little more, but, you know, to pray to Jesus all the time, asking him for this and that and the other thing. We're to pray to the Father in his name. But to address him as a separate entity into, or personality and say, thank you for dying on the cross for your sacrifice for my behalf, there's nothing wrong with that. Praying to one, you pray to them all, in a sense, because they're all God, okay? I'm just saying when you look at the New Testament, Christ tells us, pray to the Father in my name, all right? So that's where the bulk of our prayers, I believe, should be addressed to, Father. In fact, you can pick out, we take turns doing our, um, the devotions on, on a church life board for the church. Your devotions that you get, and you can pick mine out because I always use Father in the prayers. Um, because I believe that's who we should pray to, the Father in Christ's name. But I, I, there are times when I thank the Holy Spirit for His guidance, or I ask the Holy Spirit for His guidance today. Um, but it's, you, and, you know, you pray to one, you pray to them all. All right. Um, let's see, the Council of Constantinople, this is an important one, was really one of the first ones to really define the doctrine of the Trinity um, in, in, in a, in a sense. Um, for example, uh, talks about Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten, not made, that should be not made, being of one substance with the Father. This is in reference to the deity of Christ, all right? But they're, they're, they're struggling with this Trinity idea. He is of one substance. What does that mean? There's no distinction between Him and the Father in terms of their essential nature, what they are, okay? And then, um, the, we, we, I sort of stopped sort of around here. The definition from Constantinople was usia and three hypostases. That's the Greek letters there. And what it really means is God exists in three modes, or being, three, three distinct beings, but he's one substance. Okay? Three beings, one substance. And then... Um, this is what Basil wrote. For all things that are the Father's are beheld in the Son, and all things are in the Son are the Father's, because the whole Son is in the Father and has all the Father in Himself. Thus, the hypostasis of the Son becomes, as it were, form and face of the knowledge of the Father, and the 
hypostasis, which that substance of the Father is known in the form of the Son, while the proper quality which is contemplated therein remains for the plain distinction of the hypostasis. Blah, 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 blah. What he's saying is, all right, there's two of them there, two distinct beings, one substance. All right? There's two, two personalities, one single substance. All right? That's, that's how you sort that out if you're a lawyer. I'm one. The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. And to to understand God to be in the form of Christ is they feel Yeah. They feel it's idolatry and that's why they that's was one of their big problems. Now one of the things they had to protect against is this concept called tritheism. This is what we're accused of. Oh, you believe in three gods. You believe in three gods now. No, we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God manifested in three distinct personalities. So they would say is that, one, no single activity of any member of the Trinity is different than the other two. All right, so each member of the Trinity can do what every other member of the Trinity can do. All work together to accomplish the divine plan. It's not that, what he's trying to say there is that one member of the Trinity is not off doing their own thing while the other two are doing something else. They work in unison. They work together. There's a harmony in the way they work, especially in the drama of redemption. It's not that the Son is off doing something that the Father and the Holy Spirit are not in agreement with. They all three work together. All right? And, for example, in, in the idea of revelation, the, the revelation of God, it says revelation originates with the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is completed in the Holy Spirit. How do we know about God? Well, God has revealed himself most perfectly in the person of his Son, right? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And then, what did the Holy Spirit do for us? He took that revelation and he had it written down so that we could understand. So all three members of the Trinity work together in this concept of revelation. And it's not that they're off doing their own thing. They're all working in unison. There's a harmony. Especially in the drama of redemption. There's a harmony in all of that. Yes? Okay. Mm-hmm. When it comes to redemption, God the Father, for whatever reason, chose us in eternity past. He is the one who elected those who we, he would redeem. Jesus Christ is the one who came of his own free will and paid the penalty for our sin. He took our place on the cross. He provided redemption for us. He was the sin bearer. The Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. He is the one that regenerates you, that seals you, that fills you, all right, that brings new life to you, all right. That that's the simple definition there, all right. Whenever you see God's election, it's always of the Father. When you see redemption accomplished on the cross, it's always the Son. And then when you see, okay, well, how does the, the unbeliever become a believer? It's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction of sin enlightens you, helps you understand. For example, right now the Holy Spirit is helping you try to figure this out. All right, that's the Holy Spirit, what He's doing. He's the agent of regeneration. He's the one who's, who at some point in time brought you to life in Christ, raised you from the dead, spiritual death, and sustains your spiritual life. So all three members are working together to bring you to heaven. <laughs> No, 
the Holy Spirit in any, in any area of time, how is any person ever redeemed? Same way. Faith. Faith in what? Well, what did God tell him? And the agent that is responsible for bringing that light has always been the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, he may operate a little differently in today than he did in the Old Testament. For example, today the difference is there's a permanent indwelling. Whereas in the Old Testament it was not. But how did David know spiritual truth? The Holy Spirit. In fact, what did David say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So, even in the Old Testament, the Spirit is very active. All right? He... But in the New Testament, there's a, a difference in that. There's a permanent indwelling. But in every era, every, every time of mankind, the way anybody has ever been redeemed, ever had a right relationship with God, is that it's been by faith. Faith in what? What did God tell them? And how were they able to believe the Holy Spirit gave them understanding? It's the Holy Spirit that gives you spiritual understanding. In, this, in the case of non-Christians, the Holy Spirit may, you know, people may feel convicted, but there's no regeneration. We're going to sort all that out later. All right? That's a, that's a good topic, though, to discuss. But if we do it now, we'll never get done. But we're not going to forget about it. Don't worry. Um, Augustine, you can read these notes here. i got to move a little bit faster here. Augustine, for, the, the point, what you see here happening in church history is you, you see them refining what does it mean when we talk about Trinity. It's a refinement. It's not a redefinition. Nobody's redefining the Trinity. The Trinity's already been set. They're just trying to put it into words and help us understand a little better what does it mean when we talk about this, this concept. Um, I'm not going to go down there. I'm not going to go there. You can read that. I'm not going to talk about Jonathan Edwards. Um, let's go here. There's your definition of the Trinity. That's not a mathematically correct statement, but it's a theologically correct statement when it comes to the Holy when it comes to the Trinity. One plus one plus one equals one. Go with it. All right. Go with it. There's not three gods. There's one God. Now let's look at the implications. It's just a little bit here. What do, what are the implications of the Trinity when it comes to the members of the Trinity themselves? All right. The understanding here, God is one. He's not a joining together of three separate entities. It's not like three separate beings combined together to create one God. That'd be sort of tritheism, right? We're not, that's not what the Bible says. There's one God manifested in three distinct beings, personalities. But if that were the case, he should have one person. You know, if that were the case, which it isn't. Yeah. Uh, that you need to join three right. to get one, yeah. which is only worth 33%. Yeah, and a third, you know, a third. And also, here's the other problem. We, we talk about the sovereignty of God, right? How many sovereign beings can you have in the universe? One, right? Once you have two, there's no sovereignty. Somebody's got to lose, all right? So since God is sovereign, what does that imply about him? He is one, all right? It's not that the, the Father is sovereign and the Holy Spirit and Christ aren't. That's not, that doesn't work that way. The deity of each person is affirmed. No single member is more God than another member. They're all equally God. There is no contradiction in the Trinity, and any apparent contradiction is merely a result of the inability of man to fully comprehend it. It's not, 
It's not that uh, there's a contradiction there. It's just that we can't figure it out. All right? We don't understand it. We don't have the ability in our fallen human mind to comprehend fully the Trinity. We can, we can understand what God says about it. We can affirm the deity of all three members. We can understand it that way, and that's about as far as we can, we can go. And we've got to let it rest at that. The Trinity is eternal. What does it mean? It's always been. There's never a time when the Trinity didn't exist. All right? It's, it's an innate part of God himself. Now, there may be times in which one member of the Trinity is subordinate to the other, as in the drama of redemption, but that does not infer inequality. Where do you get that? Philippians chapter 2. Who being in the form of God, schema, there, I'm, I'm pretty sure that word is schema. There's schema and morphe, and I sometimes get them backwards. One of them means essential being, the other means the external representation. It says Christ was in essential being God, but he took upon himself externally what? The form of a servant. All right? It's not that he wasn't God, but he looked like a servant to us, although he was God in the flesh. And it talks about in the, he being equal, isos, with God. And we talk about isosceles triangle being equal. All right? So even in, even in Philippians, when it's talking about the drama redemption, which Christ took upon himself the form of a servant, even there it affirms that he is 100% God. There is no inequality with the Father. Finally, the Trinity is incomprehensible. We just got to take it ultimately by faith. Ultimately, you're going to have to just get to a point where you say, okay, I'm going to take it by faith. Um, the attributes are qualities of the entire Godhead. They should not be confused with properties. When we talk about the attributes of God, all members have them. Alright? All members have all the attributes. Um, Erickson here is trying to define in, in this definition, saying, even though the activity of the Holy Spirit, the activity of the Son might be different than the activity of the Father, that does not infer there's a difference in substance. They're, they're all God. They all have the attributes of deity, although the way they work is different. What they do is different. For example, the Holy Spirit points us to who? Christ. Who does Christ point us to? The Father. All right? That's how they work together. All right? In the drama of redemption. When we look at the Father and Son relationship, we'll explore this a little more when we get to Christology. But the scriptures, and this is really what stumble, where a lot of the cults stumble and trip and fall, is it speaks of the second person of the Trinity as being the only begotten, and the word there is monogenes, only begotten of the Father. All right? For God so loved the world that he sent his monogenes, his only begotten Son. And so what a lot of people do is they say, well, that means that the Son had his origin from the Father. In other words, the Son originated from the Father. All right? And that's where Arius went down this path of making Christ a created being. Christ's origin comes from the, from the Father. Others believe that this Father-Son relationship existed for all of eternity. All right? In other words, in the, in the, before time began, you still had this Father-Son relationship in the Godhead prior to creation. This is called the eternal sonship view. Christ was always the Son of God. All right? However, and this is this what we need to understand. 
When the scriptures usage of father and son, what it does, it helps us understand their relationship. How are we to understand the relationship between Christ and the Father? All right. Well, I heard a very good um, illustration of this by a guy named D.A. Carson, who forgot more about theology than most people know. Um, and he said that if you go back to the early, uh, if you transport yourself back into um, first century Judaism, all right, the culture of that day, what did the son usually do as a living? Whatever the father did, right? Whatever the father did. And in that culture, if you want to know what the father was like, who would you look to? The son, because the son did the same things that the father did. All right, joined him in his work. All right. Joseph was a carpenter, so what did Jesus do? Who's carpenter? All right. That that's that's the culture of that day. That's how they understood that day. Okay. How they understood the relationships. And so when when the Bible uses father son, it's not trying to say father son in terms of origin. It's using father son in terms of the relationship, the work. So if you want to know what God is like, who do you look to? The son. And remember what Christ said in John 16 when they asked him, "Well, show us the father." And he says, have I been with you so long and you've not gotten it yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All right? That's the culture of that day. And then when you look at the Greek word, for example, in Colossians 1.15, there's this word called firstborn. Now, again, most say, well, that means that Christ was born first in time. And that's what the Mormons come along and say that Jesus was the firstborn being of God with one of his many celestial wives, and then we come along later. So we're all half-brothers with Jesus Christ in one way or another. That's not what this word means. The Greek word for prototokos talks about preeminence. All right? It's not about the origin of what number of son were you, first, second, third, fourth. It's talking about preeminence. And so when we look, and it has the idea of uniqueness or preeminence, and so... What Colossians is saying is when we look at every human being, this is, this is where we hit the, the deity and humanity of Christ. Was Christ born? Yes. And no. But yes, he was born. He's a man. All right? He's human. So when you look at every being that's ever been born, every person that's ever been born in all of time, who's preeminent? Christ. That's what it's talking about. Prototokos. Yeah. He is the first. He's unique. He's the only. And and it's not talking about origin of birth. That's not what it's, it's not talking about origin or, or where Christ came from. It's talking about in relationship to all of the humanity that has ever lived. Who is number one? Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn. He is the prototokos. He is the most preeminent. Why? Because of his work and what he did. It's not talking about his origin in time. So hence, how do we understand it? The, the father-son terms are accommodational. They help us understand the relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity. They help us understand that relationship. Just as the early first century Jews would have understood that if you want to know what the father is like, you would look at the son, even so... In the drama redemption, if you want to know what God the Father is like, you look at the Son. The Son is the representation 
of the Father. He is the, in fact, uh, Colossians uses, he is the icon, the stamp, the image, the express image of the invisible God. The word there is icon, it means to stamp an image on a coin. You want to know what God is like? Look at the stamp of God in the person of Christ. That's what God is like. Alright? And that's how we understand this. It's, it's an accommodation. It helps us as feeble human beings understand how does the Father and the Son relate. Alright? Um, one thing here, there's a debate on this, and I, I just tossed it in here. Some say, uh, this is talking about the eternal sonship. Was Jesus always the Son of God? Well, when you look at the scripture, when did, was, first of all, was Jesus Christ always God? Absolutely. He did not have an origin. He was always God. But was he always known as the Son of God? No. When did that happen? At the Incarnation, right? It talks about unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And whenever you see the term son in the Old Testament, in reference to Christ, it's always pointing forward to his Incarnation. In the Old Testament, he is still God. He is still 100% deity. There's no, there's no lacking. They, they don't, we don't want to say that he was never God. But there came a point in time when he took upon himself the role of the Son and stepped into time and became our Redeemer. All right? So did he have, as did the Son, the personality of the Son, have a title before that we know of? Um, the title used in the Old Testament was the Angel of the Lord. Okay. That was used in the Old Testament. But again, in the Old Testament, was the, was the doctrine of the Trinity really fully developed? No. You know, I mean, you see hints of it. We talk about that. You see hints of the Trinity, but you don't see the full development of that that you do in the New Testament. You don't see it defined very well. The, the accommodational term for us okay. to understand. And the reason being then overall is because he took the form he did so that we could not contend because of the way form wouldn't Right. He had to take the form. God had to become man so that we could see that. that was, that's the great mystery of redemption. God became man. Alright. And again, when we look at the Bible could used ABC, one, two, three. You know, to refer to the members of the Trinity. It did. It uses terms that we could sort of relate to in terms of a relationship, a relational name. Father, Son. We, we understand the relationship. Eternal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk really in detail when we come to the um, Christology, the incarnation. Because, you know, what does it mean that God became flesh? We're going to talk about that. But we want to make sure that when we talk about, one thing to maybe point out here is when we talk about that, we're not saying that Christ had his origin at his birth. All right? Mary did not birth God in the sense of that being his origin. He is eternal God. But she certainly was the God-bearer in terms of the humanity of Christ. And again, there's some things there you're just going to have to go with because you're not going to sort all of that out. Unlike 
us, when did you begin? You began at the moment of conception. That's when you, that's when you started. That was not the case with, God, with Jesus. He was always eternally the Son of God. He never had a beginning point. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, in John 14, 16 and 15, 26, Christ says he's going to send the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, another comforter. All right? So, in that sense, what would you infer about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and Christ in terms of redemption? Are they both God? Yeah. But what is the Holy Spirit doing? Subordinating his will to the will of Christ in the sense that he is being sent by Christ. All right? And again, this is not to be interpreted as the Son, as the, as the Spirit had an origin with the Father or origin with the Son. Rather, he was, always was. But in terms of redemption, the Holy Spirit was sent. And that's one of the things that a lot of the cults do. A lot of the cults say, well, the Spirit is just like the power of God, you know, sort of like his, uh, his power out there. That's not true. The Holy Spirit is a distinct personality. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be dreamed. The Holy Spirit can experience joy. The Holy Spirit has a will. Those are all, those are all terms of personality. It's not just some amorphous force of God out there. It's, it's a being, okay? Um, so here's the, here's the final question here when it talks about some of these relationships. So the question is, is it relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternal in nature, or did it have a beginning? Notice what we're talking about. Relationship. We're not talking about the being, right? We're not talking about their personality. We're talking about the relationships between the members of the Trinity. Was that eternal in nature? Or did some of those relationships have a beginning point? That's what we're trying to get at. And the answer is yes, in the sense that the individual roles were taken on by members of the Trinity in the drama of redemption were determined before time began. So before time began was their time. No. Alright. So, alright, yeah, it is eternal in the sense that before time began, this was all planned out by God. So yes, in that sense, it is eternal. But no, in the sense that each member is eternally God, equal in every respect, except in the roles each plays in redemption and creation. Now, did I fully confuse everybody on this? In redemption, is Christ, did Christ submit himself to the will of the Father? Absolutely. Not my will, but thine be done. In redemption, does the Holy Spirit subordinate his will to the will of the Father and the Son? Yes, he does. That does not mean he is not God. It means in the drama of redemption, each are playing a distinct, unique role. And think about it this way. All three members of the Trinity are active in your ultimate glorification. It takes all three members of the Trinity to get you to heaven. Think about that. It's not just one. All three of them have to work together to get you in there. That's a joke. Um, there, now you get it. Let's spend a few minutes talking about open theism. And then we'll, we'll end our discussion of theology proper with this, this thing here. Um, open theism is a new, I would call it heresy, that's, on, that's come up on the horizon. And it's starting to make some uh, inroads in the various branches of, our, of Christianity. Some of the seminaries and things like that are starting to buy into this a little bit. Um, if you want to look at who the vocal proponents are, I have a book. Um, there's a book by John Sanders, The God Who Risks a Theology of Providence. 
Um, and there's also, um, in the openness of God, a biblical challenge, traditional understanding of God. It's written by several authors here. In fact, I have this book. I'm reading through it um, by Clark Pinnock. Anything Clark Pinnock reads is bad, so don't go there. Or anything he writes is bad, so don't listen to him too much. Um, but what, the, what open theism basically is trying to tell us, we've, we've talked about this in class a little bit here. Um, it's, it's a refined version of process theology. Okay, did anybody remember our definition of process theology? Did we define that in here? I think I mentioned it in passing, but you might not remember. Process theology is a liberal kind of theology. It comes from liberalism. And basically what it is is that God is in the process of learning. Okay? God is in the process of becoming God. That's why it's called process. Okay? So what God did is, you know, in process theology, God created the universe. He created mankind. And then we fell and God had to go scratch his head and figure out, okay, what do I do now? All right? So what God is doing sort of in, in process theology, and he's sort of learning how to be God as he experiments along the way. All right? It would deny his, uh, his omniscience in the sense of knowing everything. It would be a denial of his sovereignty in the sense that he's sovereign only in the sense that he can make stuff happen, but not sovereign in the sense that he can determine what happens. Okay? And so, process theology teaches that God is changing. God changes along with nature. His essential being is in the process of changing. All right? Now, that goes against what we talked about earlier on, the immutability of God, right? What does immutability mean? Unchanging. unchanging. God is not... Now, we mean by that, God is not unchanging in the sense of his relationships, but God is unchanging in the sense of his essential being. God does not change. He's not more loved today than he was a while back. He's not more wrathful or he's not gaining new attributes or anything like that. So God is not changing that sense. His moral attributes, his essential being is unchanged. Yes? To believe in this fallacy, one cannot at the same time believe in his sovereignty, nor can right. they believe in his omniscience, omniscience, and omnipresence. Right. That just goes out the window. Yes, because God is working through it as he goes along. Mm-hmm. God tried this and that didn't work, so he tried this and that didn't work, and he's going to try something else. And and the, and the thing about God, though, since he's you know a lot bigger and stronger and smarter and that, he can sort of maneuver his way out of the jams, all right. But he is not sovereign, all right. That's that's the basic idea there, all right. So basically, there they say is Jesus when it says in the Bible, God says, "I am," where it says, "I am becoming," I'm in the process of becoming. God. I am not the essential God. I am becoming. Okay? So God grows and changes along with the creation. And in the process, he himself is developing over time. God is developing. Okay? As he works through creation, as creation progresses. I'm just saying what they believe. Alright? I believe it's a bunch of baloney too. Alright? So what open theism comes along and says, well, it denies the immutability of God, open theists. Now, these are supposed evangelical Christians who are promoting this. Notice I said supposed evangelical Christians. Um, they deny the immutability of God, which says God is unchanging his attributes, essence, consciousness, and will. God's will doesn't change. God has an eternal will, and he's not going to change his mind as he goes along. All right, we talk about that, the plan of God. It also denies the impassibility of God by affirming 
This, this is the big thing here. They affirm that God is able to suffer real pain. This is, this is important here. Alright? And let me read this and then I'll explain what it means. Classic, classical theology, on the other hand, teaches that the creature cannot inflict harm or pain to God unless God sovereignly allows it. In other words, God chooses to love and chooses to suffer. Understand what, I, what that means there. Understand the difference. What the open theists say is that when you sin, you cause real pain to God. You cause God to really grieve because God really doesn't want you doing that and he can't help you that you're doing that. What classical theology says is that God, because of his transcendence, there's nothing I can do that will affect God ultimately. I can't make God more happy or more sad unless God, of his own will, allows that. Do you understand the difference? Open theism says God is bound by our actions. I mean, he, we cause him real pain. The biblical theology says, no, God feels pain with us, but only because God allows himself to feel pain with us. God allows himself to be grieved. You see the difference? Where you have your choice, he, he already has knowledge of all that we're going to do. Or yeah. Be the rougher road. It's all we like to live on the rougher road, by the way, most of us. And there's the same point. Mm. Because and it's not that he's altering his plan. It's still part of the plan, but it just depends on my lumps on the head. I like that lumps on the head. I like that usage. That's sort of what, what, what this is saying here is that can I bring happiness and joy to God? Can I as a Christian do that? Yes or no? Yes. Why can I do that? Because he allows me to bring joy to his heart. He allows that. That's the difference. Open theism is no. It's not whether God allows it or not. It just is. That's, that's what it is. I bring joy or grief to him because he can't help me. He can't help but have me bring joy or grief. Op, uh, classical theology says God allows that. And God has chosen to love and God chooses that. Okay? Right. So what open theism says this. It says God maintains a genuine and authentic relation between himself and all of mankind. All right, there's a gen I have an article on, uh, a, a theological article on this from the Master Seminary Journal. So what they're saying is, in order for this relationship to be genuine, God cannot know the future. That means God's relationship with mankind is mechanistic in nature. This is what they're saying. All right, let's, let's use the case of me and my wife. When I married my wife, what would, what would our relationship be? And this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to see it in terms of human, human relationships. If I knew everything I would ever say to my wife and every response she would make to me, all right, and every action she would ever do, is my relationship with her a genuine relationship? Think about that. Can I have a genuine, authentic relationship? If I know everything you're going to do and everything you're going to say, and if I say this, you're going to say that, and I know infallibly everything you're going to do and every action you're going to take and every mistake you're going to make, do I have an authentic relationship? 
You're, you're like a robot. You're a machine. You know, I know what you're going to do. You know, hey, you see? Only if you choose. Only if you choose. This, that's the important thing. You got it there. So what they're trying to say is that in order for God, what they're using is this, this logical explanation here. Say, in order for God to have a genuine relationship with me, God cannot infallibly know what I'm going to do. See? Because if God infallibly knows what I'm going to do, I'm no more than just a robot in his mind. Oh, I knew you were going to do that anyways. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I knew that you are going to take that road. Yep, I knew you were going to get these lumps on the head. You know. But the Bible doesn't talk about it in those terms, right? It talks about God having an authentic relationship with us. So you can't use this kind of backdoor concept of, well, in order to have an authentic relationship, I can't know what you're going to say to try and prove that God doesn't know what you're going to do to prove that God is not omniscient, to prove that God does not infallibly know the future and God is not sovereign. That's where they're going with this. So the counter to that would be simply that God is such a more higher being and our relationship with him, you can't define it in the way we You can't define, you cannot define your relationship with God in terms of your relationship with somebody else. It's different. It's different. It's a different relationship. If God didn't know what we were doing, to do or what we were going to say, then we would shock him. Yeah. And, and in fact, nothing was new or and in open theism, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying God, God is surprised. Oh, man, I didn't know he's going to do that. All right. So, yeah. Yep. You got it. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. Um, open theism rejects Calvinism. What, what, the idea of Calvinism is the predestination. And they say, if God has predestined everything and probably knows our very thoughts and actions before they occur, then how can he have any interaction with us? It's all been determined. In other words, God already determined his interaction. He, he mechanistically determined how you were going to respond. Therefore, there's no relationship. That's not what Calvinism teaches, by the way. But that's what they say it teaches. That's not what we mean. God did not... Does the Bible teach that God ordained your actions and your sins? No. He didn't. He knows what you're going to do, but he did not make you do it. All right? Open theism rejects the other aspect. Saying, if God knows our very thoughts and actions before they occur since he knows everything, then how can he have any interaction with it? It's all been foreknown. Here's the two... Here's the takeaway from this one. If you go down the Calvinism route, God ordained your reactions. If you go down the Arminianism route, God knows what you're going to do anyways. And in both cases, since God knows what you're going to do, there's no authentic relationship. Follow that? If God knows every thought, every action, every response, everything you're going to ever do, there's no authentic relationship if you define it in terms of human relationships. That's the difference. And that's the wrong way to look at it. See what happens when you bring your brain to bear on this stuff? You get fouled up every time. All right? Jacob Arminius. We'll talk about those later. Okay? We'll, we don't, we, we'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> but yeah, that, those are just... What I'm trying to show is whether you believe in a Calvinistic view where, you know, there's a God ordains or whether you believe in the fact that just God just knows because he's omniscient. In both ways, you don't have an authentic relationship because God knows what you're going to do. There's no authenticity to that. 
You know, if I say, let's go out to eat, and I know where you're going to go, why should I ask, right? Let's just go. That's the point. Okay? So open theism asserts the following. God does not infallibly know the future. He only can control certain events due to his great power, but there's an uncertainty in the outcome. God does not infallibly know how it's all going to turn out. He does not know. Because if we were to know, that would not... That would mean he couldn't have an authentic relationship. So he doesn't really know. He's working it out. God took a risk. You know, when he created the universe, he rolled the dice and said, well, maybe this thing will work out, maybe it won't. He doesn't know. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. And since God does not infallibly know who will or will not be saved, his relationship is genuine. He doesn't know if you're going to, oh, I'm going to get to heaven or not. It's still uh, rolling the dice. Maybe you'll get there, maybe you won't. He doesn't know yet, because you're not there yet. There isn't, is there? None. Zero. Okay. So what do they do? How do they support their theology? All right. Well, they go to this, what we call, this is a fancy word, anthropopathism, pathos, feeling, anthro-man, where it talks about how God feels like us. And when they say, well, when the Bible says God grieves or is sorry, we're to take that literally God grieving. Authentically, he is grieving because we did something that he did not plan us to do. Whereas classical theology says, no, God knew we were going to do that, but that doesn't obviate the fact that he still feels sorry that we did what he... It's like your kids, right? Your kid makes a... You know, he's going to make a dumb decision. You know it's going to be dumb. You know it's going to hurt him. Do you feel bad that he makes it? Yeah, all right, but you let him make it anyways. All right? And when it says God was truly sorry he, he created mankind, he really was. He said, you know, I really blew this thing. I shouldn't have done that. It also talks about divine ignorance. You know, when God asks a question, hey, Adam, where are you? It's because he didn't know where Adam was. He couldn't find him in the garden. That doesn't mean that God couldn't find him in the garden. God was trying to get Adam to own up to where he's at, right? It's not that God didn't know. Well, if God was truly sorry to make man, then why, why should he say he loves us? Yeah. Why didn't he just wipe us out and start over again, right? Nobody would know the difference if he erased the universe and started again. When we look at this, the biblical response is, we understand when it says God grieves, God is sorrowful, God is joyful, those are figurative. We do bring joy to God's heart. But only because God allows us to bring joy to his heart. Because God wants us to bring joy to his heart. And the divine ignorance passage is from the human perspective. It's not that God didn't know where Adam was. God's trying to get Adam to do what? I'm here. It's not that God doesn't know. When God asks Cain, hey Cain, where did Abel go? It's not that God didn't know that Cain had slain Abel, right? What's God trying to do? It's like your little kid when he comes in with jelly all over his face, say, where have you been? It's not that you don't know, right? You know where the kid's been. He's in the jelly jar. You're trying to get him to own up to it, all right? And we see that a lot in Scripture. Um, open theism, when it comes to Abraham, they say, well, God's test of Abraham. Remember when he said, go take your son and sacrifice him? That was a genuine test. God didn't know how that was going to turn out. God didn't know if Abraham would pass it or not. It was a risk. However, the Bible says what? God knew the heart of Abraham. He had confidence in Abraham's faith. He knew what Abraham was do. And why did God do this? For God's benefit? So he could figure out whether Abraham really believed or not? Who was it for? Abraham's benefit. It was not for God's benefit. It was Abraham's benefit. 
and by extension ours, how do we know that Abraham was a person of faith? How do you know that Abraham was a man of faith? What he did, right? That's how we know. How do I know you're a Christian? By some halo you have? Some glow? It's by what you do, right? It's the fruit. If there's no fruit, I, I have every reason to believe you're not a Christian. Yeah. Before. Before. Yeah. It was proof to Abraham, not proof to God. God knew. But Abraham needed the assurance that, yeah, he really did believe. And by extension, us. All right? Open theism teaches that God doesn't infallibly know the future. All right? And this is a long quote. I'm not going to read this quote. But basically, it's basically, God knows all the possibilities, but God doesn't know what possibility is going to happen. Because the decision has not yet been made, and since it's not been made yet, and God is a victim and a, and a prisoner of time, just like we are, He does not know what's going to happen. Okay? I'm hurrying through this. We've got four more slides. We're done. The Bible clearly teaches our God does know. We talked about this. God infallibly knows the future. You can look these passages up. In fact, God's... Great challenge to Israel in Isaiah 40 48 says, Let's bring, on, bring in all the other gods of the nations. Which one of them is going to tell you the end from the beginning? Which one of them is going to tell you the future? If they can, you can worship them. God has knowledge of the future. God knows what's going to happen. And he fallibly knows what's going to happen. Nothing's going to take him by surprise. And then they say, well... Their view best answers tragedies. Why is it a tragedy? Because God didn't know what's going to happen. You know, God did not know those planes were going to crash into the World Trade Centers. He did not know that person was going to die in a car accident. He had no idea that the person that you love is going to come down with cancer or die of a heart attack. He did not know that. In fact, open theism would say, you know, Al Algram, who passed away a few weeks ago, that was a shock to God that he died of a heart attack. God didn't know it was going to happen. He did not fallibly know. So, for this terrible viewpoint, what in the world is left to make God still be God? That's a good question. I love the way MacArthur confirmed it. He said, you know, I've been seeing every heresy known to man through the centuries. He said, I never thought they would deny the deity of God. That's really what you're doing. You're denying the deity of God. God is not God. He's a, he's a created being. For example, this is the, how do you like to believe this? When a two-month-old child contracts a painful, incurable bone cancer, it means suffering and death, it's a pointless evil. It's a pointless evil. It happened. God couldn't solve it. The Holocaust is a pointless evil. There's no purpose in it. There's no purpose in a tragedy. The accident that caused the death of my brother, he had a brother that was killed, was a tragedy. A lot of these guys, they have something bad happen in their life, they write a book about it, and they turn it into a theology. His brother's death in an accident was a tragedy. God didn't, couldn't prevent it. It was a pointless evil. How'd you like to live like that? I don't know. Here, look at this one here. God does not have a specific purpose in mind for these occurrences. What does the Bible teach? Everything that comes into your life, every trial, every test, every tragedy is to do what? To make you more like Christ. God works all things for good. All of them. 828. All things for good. Nothing's going to happen to you that God, that's going to catch God by surprise. So in response, and I'm sorry I went five minutes over, God divests 
It divests God of his omniscience. It makes God a victim of his creation. It teaches God does not know what's going to happen. It sees tragedies as unforeseen events catching God and man alike unawares. It provides only hope that everything will work out as God plans. It's only hope. It's not, it's not guaranteed. We hope God can pull it off. We hope that he can win. What does the Bible teach? God's omniscient. God's not a victim of creation. God is over it. God knows everything that's going to happen. And God, this is the important thing for us. God takes all tragedies and turns them around for our eternal benefit. Every tragedy. And gives hope that all things will work out. Folks, our eternity is guaranteed. It's not a, I hope I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Because God's ordained it. All right. Let's close in prayer and we'll start Christology next week. Father, thank you for this time and we've gone through an awful lot of information here. Help us as we ponder it and I pray that uh, we will just gain more assurance that you are God and you are who you are and we thank you for being that. In Christ's name, amen.